0: Hey, Trumpcast listeners, Jacob Weisberg here. What you're about to hear is not an episode of Trumpcast. It's a new Slate show called Upon Further Review, hosted by Mike Pesca. I think you might love it. And to talk about it, here is Mike Pesca. Hey, Mike. Hello.
1: I was hoping it might be a quasi episode of Trumpcast. I have a lot of uh, thoughts about the essential consultants and the the essential nature thereof, but actually fine, we can talk about this podcast I've been working on for weeks and weeks, which is a tie-in to my book, upon further review. And the subtitle of the book will give you a hint about what the podcast is about. It's The Greatest What Ifs in Sports History. So we did a podcast about that.
0: Like sports counterfactuals.
1: Yeah, counterfactuals is a good multisyllabic essential consultants type way of looking <laughs> at it. So the book is 31 chapters and what I wanted to do in the podcast. So as you know, I host the Gist because we're not done plugging my products, I guess. So I host the Gist and I think in one way with the gist every day, thinking audio, and then I've been working on this book for two years, thinking about sports, thinking about the written word, and the streams had to cross, and I started saying, some of these would make a good podcast episode. Luckily, I work for Slate, and Jacob's my boss, and he'll probably greenlight it. And so you did, and so this is what the resulting... A podcast is. It's five chapters from kind of inspired by the book. It's not like reading the book. They're wholly reported or produced chapters. It's a short, limited series, but I think it will at least spark the imagination.
0: Well, Mike, I love listening to you talking about sports. I don't watch a huge amount of sports, but yeah. I love a smart conversation about sports. And I know that that's what this show is all about.
1: I think you need to know very little about sports. This episode we're about to hear, knowing a little bit about Richard Nixon would probably help you more because it's Leon Names. Of Slowburn and Slate asking the question what if Nixon were good at football? And other episodes include What If the U.S. Women's Team Had Missed the Kick in the World Cup. So it's sort of a rewriting of women's sports history. And then Jesse Eisenberg does a fun essay about him being a fan of the Phoenix Suns in 1993. This is the flavor of what you get on this uh, podcast.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, interestingly, the sort of fallacy there may be that if a, a sort of different path would have directed someone into a different profession, that obviously could be the case. But in terms of their qualities... Would it have affected them in any way? I mean... Reagan was a football player, too, right? And also, but, you know, Reagan kind of brought the same qualities to football, which he wasn't good at. He was too small, he couldn't see, but he brought the same qualities to football that he did to politics. Yeah, he played
1: football badly in one way, and Nixon played football badly in another way, which Leon will tell us about.
0: All right. Yeah, the the British term is uh, enthusiastically. Reagan played football enthusiastically.
1: (laughs) I think, though, Nixon played football viciously.
0: Did he? try to. A... I don't know anything. I do know about Reagan's football career because I paid a lot of attention to it when I was writing a Reagan biography a couple of years ago, and I've certainly read my share of Nixon biographies, but I can't remember much about him as a football player other than Whittier College. Oh, Nixon? Yeah. Well, luckily, there's a podcast about that that you're going to hear in two seconds. Excellent. Was was Did Nixon have any talent on the gridiron? He was about as good at football as he was at break-ins. <laughs> well mike i can't wait to listen to it we're just putting this episode in our trumpcast feed if you like it and you want to hear more episodes you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts
1: what if it is a prayer it is a penance it is a point to ponder rue In sports, What If? is the engine of endless discussions and debate, and for us, it is the narrative device of this podcast. Hello, I'm Mike Pasca. I'm the host of the Slate podcast, The Gist, an author and editor of the new book, Upon Further Review. That book is a collection of the sharpest minds in sports, considering the greatest what-ifs in sports history. And that is the subtitle of the book, by the way. Now, a few months ago, I said to myself, wait, what if I took some of the most interesting stories in the book and turned them into their own podcast? What if, indeed. So here we are. We have five episodes told in five very different ways by a stellar bunch of journalists and storytellers. In this episode one, we ask, what if Richard Nixon were good at football? Because he wasn't. But he badly wanted to be. And that might have changed everything. Reporting this story is the team behind the hit podcast, Slow Burn, reporter Leon Nafok and producer Andrew Parsons. Here now is
2: Leon. Football really mattered to Richard Nixon. In the early 1970s, all you had to do was turn on the news to see the president's intense love of the sport on display.
3: President Nixon, over the weekend, watched three football games. President Nixon watched two games at the same time on two television sets. And he delayed his departure so he could see the Redskins play on television. I just enjoy playing it, watching it, reading about it over the years.
2: Throughout his presidency, Nixon personally got involved in football from his perch inside the White House. He regularly spoke to Washington Redskins coach George Allen by phone. He even visited the team between games at their training facility.
3: President Nixon showed up to watch some live football practice. If you need a play, let me
2: know. <laughs> it's rumored that on one occasion, Nixon actually called in a play during a game that resulted in the Redskins losing. Another time, Nixon ordered his attorney general to call the commissioner of the NFL and get him to lift the league's policy of blocking home playoff games from airing on TV. On the infamous White House tapes, You can hear Nixon cursing while watching a game on television with his daughter,
4: Julie.
2: It's impossible to make out the words here, but that's Nixon yelling at his TV. He's saying, God damn it, and son of a bitch.
5: He was a very demonstrative fan.
2: This is Evan Thomas, author of the Nixon biography, Being Nixon.
5: When he was at law school, people in the stands would like to be near him. He was such a crazy fan that people would go to games to watch Nixon cheer.
2: In speeches, in interviews, in conversations with advisors, Nixon was always referencing football.
3: More than the recreation, more than the enormous spectator sport that it is, football is a spirit, a spirit of competition, a spirit of when we lose, of trying to win the next time out, and a spirit, may I say also, of being for our team.
2: As president. Nixon intuitively understood the power of being on a team, of belonging to a tribe. He understood it because he had experienced it firsthand as a college student in the early 1930s when he was a football player at Whittier College outside Los Angeles. I'm using the term football player loosely here. The only times young Nixon actually got to play in a game at Whittier College was when his team, the poets, was winning by so much that it didn't matter. In what you would think were his moments of glory, crowds occasionally chanted Nixon's name, We want Nixon, they would yell. Put Nixon in. It was an ironic chant. It only came when the poets were getting destroyed and the game was out of reach. The joke was that Richard Nixon sucked at football. For one thing, he was small.
5: Physically, he was 5'9", 145 pounds, thin-shouldered. and He just doesn't look like a football player, and he wasn't.
2: To make matters worse... Nixon was an offensive lineman, a position in which being scrawny is a serious limitation, because in order to be good at it, you have to intimidate and physically overpower your opponents. Nixon was also a klutz.
5: You know, he dropped things. He was completely clumsy. He was so uncoordinated, literally uncoordinated, and he fell down. Nixon was useful to the team during
2: practice, but mostly as a tackle dummy for the other players.
5: Richard Nixon was the worst possible football player imaginable.
2: The years Nixon spent warming the bench for the Whittier poets had a profound effect on his life. One big reason for this was his coach, a man named Wallace Newman, who was known to his players as simply Chief.
3: My coach is an American Indian, Chief Newman. He was a perfectly remarkable man and a great leader. And I learned a lot sitting by the coach on the bench. Learned about football, learned about life.
2: More than anything Nixon did or didn't do on the field, it was his relationship with Chief that ensured that football would leave a lasting mark on him. There is no such thing as a good loser, only a loser, Chief would tell Nixon. Also, you must never be satisfied with losing. You must get angry, terribly angry about losing. Richard Nixon took those words to heart, and Chief came to respect Nixon's stubborn resilience in the face of inevitable failure.
5: Coach liked having him around because he had, he had guts, he had grit.
2: Nixon once said that Chief drilled into him a competitive spirit, and the determination to come back after you've been knocked down or after you lose. The player and the coach got along in part because they shared a similar sense of grievance. According to historian Julian Zelizer, Chief was sore about not getting to coach somewhere better than Whittier.
6: This was a small college program. He himself had played football at USC and he had been a very good player and many people thought this was a guy who should be coaching big time football and here he was in Whittier College coaching people like Richard Nixon.
2: Nixon, for his part, was in a constant, silent rage about having to go to Whittier instead of Harvard, where he'd been accepted, but which his family couldn't afford. So what you had was a resentful kid who wanted desperately to be good at football, but wasn't. A kid who never got to go out on the field when it mattered, who sat on the sidelines looking up to this coach who was always talking about how much he hated losers. In some ways, he was the loser of the team. So how did Nixon transcend his status as a football loser? The process began as soon as he got to Whittier. Though still just a freshman, the future president of the United States sensed an opportunity involving the campus social scene. He realized that the single, members-only club in school was so exclusive that most of the student body was left out in the cold. The name of this well-to-do group was the Franklins. And as Nixon saw them, their entire identity was built around the blueness of their blood and the blackness of their fancy tuxedos. Nixon used to say that the Franklins offered him a spot in their club, but that he rejected them. The Franklins insist that he applied, and they rejected him. In any event, the benchwarmer decided to help found a rival organization. It would cater to athletes and football players in particular, including not only star players like the quarterback, but also the linemen, guys who had less status. Nixon's new club would be proudly working class and anti-elitist, It would be called the Orthogonian Society, and Nixon would be its first president. The Orthogonians were an antidote to everything the Franklin stood for.
4: I think they had their pictures taken in the tux, and, and we had our pictures taken with a white shirt with no tie.
2: That's Al Stoll. He's a Whittier graduate, just like Nixon. And while I wish I could tell you that he and the president were at Whittier at the same time, that would make Stoll about 105 years old. In reality... Stoll was at Whittier about 15 years after Nixon, but the two men had remarkably similar experiences there. Not only did Stoll play football for the poets as a lineman, he was coached by Chief, and he was a member of the Orthogonian Society. It's like
4: a fraternity. We do a lot of different things together. Go to ball games. Uh, several of us would go to the beach and surf. Every once in a while, I run into an Orthogonian, and we're still good friends.
2: The Orthogonians had some strict traditions. Among them, a belief in what they called the four B's. As Nixon once explained in an interview, the B's stood for brains, brawn, beans, and bowels.
3: Now the bowels, of course, guts for the football player. The brains, we were all students. The brawn, we were gonna be strong. The beans was that in those depression years, uh, every week we used to get together for a feed. Uh, We didn't have meat, uh, so we had beans we eat
2: beans. Al Stoll thinks it's possible that Nixon started the Orthogonians as a way to make up for the fact that he was such a nobody on the field.
4: It may have been a little lonely, and the fact that he was an Orthogonian, that may have, may have helped him being part of the team, and a lot of his friends were Orthogonians, and and they may have made him feel a lot more at home than, than if he were just a player. On the bench.
2: In other words, Nixon might not have felt the need to start the Orthogonians if he hadn't been so bad at football. This is worth dwelling on for a moment, because starting the Orthogonian club was a formative political experience for Nixon. In many ways, it laid out a blueprint for the rest of his career. Here's Julian Zelizer again.
6: It's not just this first political act, but people look back to that in college as him almost organizing, the way people organizing against the establishment. I think that kind of organization was instinctive to him, and it let him play out some of the anxiety and frustration he had with his situation being in Whittier.
2: The fact that the Orthogonians made a point of welcoming linemen was politically very shrewd. Here's Thomas.
5: It's like the the aristocrats were the halfbacks, and the grunt workers were the linemen. Well, the cool guys, the halfbacks, the quarterbacks, they might join the Franklins, the Stars. But the grunts, the blue-collar linemen, they joined the Orthogonians. And Nixon, of course, understood that there were more linemen than there were halfbacks. And Nixon was a politician. He was running for office. He cared about votes.
2: Nixon also understood that people who belonged to this underappreciated group, this silent majority, if you will, often felt ignored. Later in life, Nixon put it this way. The greatest back in the world can't run
3: unless the offensive line pushes the other people back and opens the holes. And uh, I have often said, offensive linemen are the most underpaid, unpublicized players in football.
2: In a precursor to his 1968 presidential victory, Nixon the benchwarmer, Nixon the loser, rode his position atop the Orthogonians to reach the zenith of Whittier campus life. Before graduating second in his class, he assumed the post of student body president. The best part? He beat out a Franklin for the job. Despite reaching these great heights in college, Richard Nixon was nearly as ill-suited for politics as he had been for football. He was shy, bookish, and he didn't enjoy talking to people. According to Thomas, Nixon's awkward social demeanor meant that both his football career and his political career were characterized by a deep inferiority complex.
5: He was such an unnatural politician. I think he didn't really feel he deserved to be president. So that he, in moments of glory, he tended to be gloomy. At some level, he thought he was an imposter.
2: It's amazing to consider how quickly Nixon advanced in politics despite all that. In 1960, Nixon was just 47 years old and running for president with a resume that included four years as a congressman, two as a senator, and eight as vice president under Eisenhower. He had never lost a single election. That summer, he made a campaign stop back at Whittier College's football stadium. Standing on a platform on Hadley Field, he gave a speech surrounded by many of his old teammates and fellow Orthogonians.
3: And as I see the great stars of that team, I want to tell you something that impresses me. This is the first time those guys have been on the sidelines and I've been in the playing field.
2: (laughs) Of course, Nixon's political winning streak was broken later that year by the cool and magnetic JFK the ultimate Franklin to Nixon's Orthogonian. Two years later, Nixon suffered an even more humiliating loss when he ran unsuccessfully for governor of California. The defeat put Nixon's persecution complex on full display, and it activated the intense disdain for losing that Coach Newman had instilled in him. When Nixon theatrically retired from politics after the loss in 1962, he played the victim and pointed his crooked, unsteady finger at the press.
3: You've had a lot of thought. You've had an opportunity to attack me, and I think I've given as good as I've taken. I leave you gentlemen now. Just think how much you're going to be missing. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore.
2: The former football player was back on the bench. But just a few years later, Nixon made an astonishing comeback, reestablishing himself on the national scene and presenting himself to voters as a new Nixon. Now, this might sound a bit like armchair psychology, because it is, but it sure seems that in mounting this comeback, Nixon was fueled by the lessons he learned under Coach Newman at Whittier. In his 1968 presidential race against Hubert Humphrey, Nixon ran unmistakably as an orthogonian. With vice presidential candidate Spiro Agnew in tow, the Nixon campaign stoked class resentment, railed against the East Coast establishment, and positioned Nixon as a torchbearer for neglected linemen everywhere.
3: It is the voice of the great majority of Americans, the forgotten Americans, the non shouters the non-demonstrators, the real voice of America.
2: If Nixon's time as head of the Orthagonians provided the model for his ascent to the presidency, it was his aversion to losing that led to his downfall. You can see this most clearly in a strategy meeting held in 1972 when Nixon was running for a second term against George McGovern. Evan Thomas says that in this meeting... Nixon was relentlessly focused on winning no matter what.
5: The Democrats were way behind and Nixon wanted to keep pounding them you know, even though they're beat. Just hit, keep hitting them and hitting them and hitting them. This is what we need to do with the Democrats. Don't let up. Keep pounding. And uh, that led them into excesses. That was a kind of a license to keep going with dirty tricks.
2: Thomas isn't just talking about the Watergate break-in, but all the acts of sabotage that were carried out in the lead-up to the 72 election in order to undermine Nixon's political opponents. Now, Thomas notes that we still don't know if Nixon was giving direct orders to the henchmen who were actually running these plays. But the president's win-at-all-costs mantra was surely absorbed by the people working for him. It was also likely at the heart of the frantic, doomed cover-up that would eventually end his presidency.
3: The select Senate committee to investigate the Nixon re-election scandals began its work in the Senate caucus room. President Nixon ordered secret electronic listening devices. More than 50,000 telegrams poured in on Capitol Hill today. Most of them demanded impeaching Mr. Nixon. The court ruled that the president must turn his disputed secret tapes over to see if they have evidence of criminal acts. The full story of Watergate now will
2: come out. So, back to that what if. What if Nixon had been good at football? Could all of this have gone another way? There are a few possible scenarios to consider. In the most obvious one, Nixon stays in politics, but he isn't burdened with the psychological baggage of his pathetic football career. It's possible that he would have come out of Whittier self assured and confident in his place. Would Nixon have been less of a cutthroat president then? Could the nightmare of Watergate have been avoided? It's a tempting scenario, but Julian Zelizer, ever the cautious historian, warns against going too far down that road.
6: It's too simple to say, had he been great at football, everything would have been different, because there's too many things that go into the mix of a person, a politician, and a president.
2: Another possibility is that Nixon, as a successful football player, would have avoided politics altogether. Maybe he would have gone into sports. In a 1983 interview, Nixon himself toyed with this idea.
3: As a matter of fact, I would enjoy being a sports writer. Not just to write about it, but to travel with the team, you know, and sit in the locker rooms with them and on the airplane and talk to them and find out about them and try to give them a little lift here and there and so forth.
2: In Nixon's fantasy of life as a sports writer, he wasn't a shrimpy outcast or cannon fodder. He was part of the team, one of the boys. In this vision of journalists cozying up to their powerful sources, it tells you quite a bit about Nixon's attitude towards the press and what he thought their proper role should be. It's possible the real lesson of Nixon's football career isn't in the details of these alternate histories. It might be a more personal lesson that something as seemingly trivial as a couple of years playing or not playing college football can leave such lasting scars. Despite all the life experiences he gained as an adult, Nixon retained the soul of the benchwarmer throughout his aborted presidency. Here's Zelizer again.
6: Presidents are humans, and football was not insignificant uh, to his daily life. And if it had been different, if he had been a rock star football player, the quarterback of the team who everyone loved, and, and had that role at an early age, it could certainly have had a, an effect on him psychologically. I, I believe people can change depending on what happens to them. It's not all cooked.
2: There was one major decision that Nixon made in his political career it flew in the face of everything he had learned during his time with the Whittier Poets under Coach Newman. It happened in August of 1974, as pressure from the special counsel investigation into Watergate increased and the notion of impeachment became easier to fathom. Nixon ultimately decided to give up, to stop fighting, to quit.
3: I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow.
2: The man who replaced Nixon in the White House was, of course, his vice president, Gerald Ford.
3: My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over.
2: Ford was a football guy, too. Also an offensive lineman and also a bit of a klutz. And he wasn't a great president. But unlike Nixon, he was comfortable in his own skin and really good at the sport. Ford played for the University of Michigan, a Division I football powerhouse. While Nixon was riding the pine for the poets, Ford was leading the Wolverines to national championships in 1932 and 1933. And he was voted team MVP in 1934. After graduating, he turned down offers to play with the Detroit Lions and the Green Bay Packers. As president... Ford would often ask the naval band to skip Hail to the Chief when they performed at official state events. Instead, he would have them play another triumphant tune from his past, Michigan's fight song, The Victors. Because that's what winners do.
1: Reporter Leon Nafalk. Our story was produced by Andrew Parsons and edited by Derek John. If you need more Nixon in your life, make sure to check out season one of the Slow Burn podcast. Leon and Andrew tell me they're hard at work on season two coming out this fall. Clinton. That really is one of the top two college fight songs, isn't it? Best team in the West. If you like what you heard here right now, we are just getting started. Here is a quick sampling on the what ifs to come. What if the Dodgers never left Brooklyn?
3: I heard from many people who think the city will be just
1: fine without baseball. What if Brandy Chastain missed her penalty kick in the Women's World Cup final? It's amazing how quiet 90,000 plus people could be. And what if Tom Brady Had never taken over for the Patriots. What are
6: the Patriots thinking? Are they thinking?
1: And in our very next episode, what if Jesse Eisenberg hadn't written a fan letter to his favorite NBA player in 1993? How did Dan Marley, a defensive master, so helplessly lose
6: focus? It was me. I am responsible.
1: Special thanks to Joe Dimahowski, Rick Perlstein, the NBC News Archive, the Nixon Presidential Library and Museum, the University of Georgia, and Rayford Communications. What if Richard Nixon were good at football? Was inspired by a chapter written by Julian Zelizer. You can find that and other great what ifs in Upon Further Review, published by Hachette. Upon Further Review, the podcast is hosted by me, Mike Pesca. Our executive producer is Derek John. T.J. Raphael is senior producer and Steve Licta is executive producer of the Slate Podcast Network. To make sure you catch every episode, please do this. Please subscribe on Stitcher, Apple, TuneIn Overcast, Google Play. I shan't name them all, but you know where you get your podcasts. And when you're there, do leave us a rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and we'll see you next time
5: on Upon Further Review.